relax. Those beats mean you're now listening to the very real people in places that supply your high. This is Grown Local with Billy Wayne Davis and Mike McGowan. Happy Thanksgiving there, Mr. Billy Wayne Davis. Hey. How's it going? Is it Thanksgiving? It is Thanksgiving. Well, I mean, I guess technically on the West Coast, you're getting this on Thanksgiving. Right? They are. Right? Yeah. It's, 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 and then it, it's within and a then day. Patreons, so, I mean, it's Patreons it's are cool. getting it, you know, whenever. Because we're doing this early. Early, early. They're, early. They're the hey, lucky ones. I'm not sitting ones. on a stool in, on this one. <laughs> Just want to put that out there, so I won't be disappearing in the on the screen. I was so my, bummed. My, I was so bummed we didn't catch that. Bruised. Is it really? Yeah, I right. left one. It hit like it felt like someone just like punted my ass. <laughs> Wonderful little Charlie horse. I, I knew enough. I was like, if I don't go exercise with it bruised, and it's just gonna hurt. So. Yeah, tell everybody what oh, happened. Oh, okay, I guess no one knows. I guess no one... Some people on Twitter know I tweeted about it as soon as it <laughs> happened. But we were doing uh, some some stuff, some grown local stuff, uh, tracking some intro outros and then discussing business and hanging out on a Zoom afterwards. And I, uh, I've got these old stools I love. And one of the screws had fell off, full disclosure, like before we started recording. And I was like, this is fine. I'll fix it afterwards. They always give an extra. It, uh, and then in the middle of us just talking, it just gave, gave way. And then Slee and Mike, neither of them laughed. Cause like, as soon as I hit the ground, I also had my bong in my hand. I was so, so I scared about it. the bong. I saved it. Cause we were done recording. So I was going to get like ripped before I go watch TV for the night. <laughs> and then I felt it going, and I, I guess I made an, I don't know what noise I made or anything, but I when I hit, I was like mad because it's just that feeling of no control, which makes you, that makes me feel angry. You know what I mean? <laughs> when you're reminded, like, you really have no control. Just that The world is chaos. Reminder. Yeah, where just every now and then the world's like, fuck you and pushes you over, and you're like, don't, that, I got fucking asshole but then like i quickly regained myself about that and then i was like i was like oh man i bet they were like cry laughing right now because i just disappeared and i looked up and you both were look so concerned and you're like Are you okay i was like yeah i mean i'm mad but yeah it, i was like why aren't you guys laughing you're like the noise you made was not it good. was scary <laughs> it was like one of the ones and especially since we're men of a certain age you know we know how it feels to fall as a grown adult like when you're younger it's just like whoa so funny but <laughs> like when you get to adult you're just like motherfucker god damn when you're not it. prepared it does it hurts in a way that you're just like i think that's what makes you mad is it, it it's a sudden pain where you're like i just i'm not i know how to take a hit so let me adjust to it yeah but it's this it's a universe sucker punch, isn't it? So one of my favorite things is I don't think I told you this, but uh, just watching it happen over Zoom, we just heard a crack, and you had your bong in your hand, but then like you swiped almost at the camera or the phone, like you were grabbing onto a life preserver, and you still <laughs> fell back. 
<laughs> but then the sound you made when you hit, it was just like, oh, that they, that could be something right there. <laughs> well, I think because <laughs> I was, you know, when I hit, I was like, fuck, man, I hope this is just a bruise and nothing where I have to go see somebody. But it was just a bruise. But I think I would have, I did catch myself with my with my left hand, but it wouldn't have been, I would have caught myself full on if I wasn't trying to save. And and another thing I thought about like later on, like a couple of days later, it was like, oh, if it had been a bong I didn't give a shit about that motherfucker, I would have thrown it down <laughs> and caught myself and just been like, fuck that, that's a piece of shit. But I love that bong so much that I was like, no, this is, this is important, save this is a piece it. of work, this is art. Fuck my hip, I'm going to save the bomb. <laughs> well, I knew that my ass is strong. Like, it's thick enough it could take a... And it did. It took a good licking. And it was only one of them. You were worried about my tailbone, which I think was a... I was... When you said that, I was like, oh. Because there was adrenaline, so you're just like, oh, no. Oh. <laughs> I don't want a broken ass. That's going to... That put you out for a little bit. As a bigger man, I've killed a lot of chairs in my lifetime. Um, so I know how that feels. Um, I, I try. I try sometimes to lean into it and make it more comical. Like you know, make sure my extremities go flying around when it happens. Just you take... don't have to put that. They just do it. I think that's <laughs> when it happens. I think you're just like, oh no. no. It, and this this is a fun intro because it has literally nothing to do with this episode. <laughs> You know what? It kind of, you know you want me to transition into yes, you, yes. I want to hear the Billy Wayne metaphor that connects the entire universe together. Well, it's no secret that uh, our guest uh, spent time in prison. Oh yeah. So this is very much proof that sometimes the universe comes in and does what it wants with you, and you have to adjust to it. You have to save what you can and then take your licks and then get back up. And I think that's what a metaphor for what he did and what he's continuing to do. How about that? that I think good. that was awesome. And to Fuck yeah, man. And to further go down on that metaphor. I didn't mean it like that. But God <laughs> damn it. There's no other way to take what you said. That's I, the only way I to realized take. it as it was coming out of my mouth. Um once again. That one I did. Okay. It's like you're Tobias. <laughs> Arrested the development. It's like David Cross's character, not David Cross. His character took over your body for the last minute. Um, ultimately, this is such a, such a more serious interview than than the intro is. It really is, on. which is undeniably amazing because, like, this story is this entire human being as a person the conversation changed me a lot like because you can fall and a chair can break but the way that this man actually broke it down and had a level of self-realization that i don't think most of us possess with what he went through was astonishing for me like when he was telling his story the way that he processed it and the way that i thought about it i was like oh shit i I should do that with most of life in general, you know? It's oh, it's inspiring. I mean, and he even taught, he is a special person because even the people that he went through his thing with didn't come out with the same perspective. 
that he has. No. So it wasn't about his experience because several people, you know, another dude had the same experience and did not leave as affected or change the way. I mean, he did, they did leave affected and changed, but <laughs> not in the same way, which is, it's neither good or bad. It's just what happens. Yeah, it's just... So that's, it was very interesting. Like there's just, the whole story is very, very interesting. And it, it's, I feel, and I, <coughs> I feel, and I've said this before and I, and I don't, mean to keep saying it but it's just true it's like after every one of these interviews you realize like oh these are special people yeah like i feel better for getting to meet them and hang out in their spot and it just like it keeps getting cooler and this one's no different his whole life is is pretty amazing and i think a testament to silver finding silver linings and learning from your mistakes it's, he's just a testament to that, which is like most farmers are going to preach that, and he's had to preach it a little. He's had to earn it and hard, a little harder than everybody else. But I will say, like, and we'll be posting tons of pictures because his farm was absolutely gorgeous to a level in which, like, a lot of farms can be very utilitarian, but the way that he had his farm had so much gorgeous flowers all over the place. You know, so many spiritual, you know, things going on as far as statues and other things. And it's like, oh, yeah, if I spent eight years in prison, I think I would probably want to flourish and do as much as, you know, this man did about, like, you know, putting that intent and that love into your land because it is his family's land, you know, well... You'll hear about that in the interview, but you know it's a it's a connection to the land that I think is very special, and I was just very happy. And to, to be the there. community, yeah, you're gonna hear his connection to how the community responded too, which like it may it now that you know when that when I think about that that part makes me like kind of like it gives me chills. The community part and taking care of it's just another someone someone put it's like the weed wireless network yeah. it's like another we're, we're slowly going down the the chain someone posted that like a comment in one of our <laughs> socials and i was like that's a cool way to put that but this is a special one you guys um tune in uh listen to it probably a couple times it's worth it well like we said we'll post some pictures and things like that it's it's just it was a it was a magical place I mean, to, to quote Slee, <laughs> when every every place we went to in Humboldt, he was just like, "It's it's magical. Like, it really is." You're also breathing a lot more oxygen than you're used to, but it's also magical. Do the thing, Mike. Give it up for John from Huckleberry Hill Farms. One of my friends up in Oregon, he got busted back in the day because he um, 
he was throwing his soil out in the backyard and they flew over with a helicopter and they saw the whole mound of perlite basically from like it just being rained over so much gotcha. and it just stood right out mm-hmm. they're yeah. like oh yep yeah, that's uh grow right there yeah. Huh. <laughs> so, wow yeah that's always the fun ones but yeah i i do kind of i feel like at least cannabis will be able to teach the world a little bit about regenerative farming and different farming practices to care about the environment, you know, like we were talking about, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and I don't only think, I, I hope that someday, you know, I don't expect that the way we're farming here will command the whole market, but there'll be a certain percentage of those people that normally go to like a Whole Foods mm-hmm. will come to a regenerative type farm that uh, is smaller versus larger that the person can give individual attention to every plant and um you know knowing your farmer and who that farmer is and what their values are is so important for the consumer to know and maybe it's too early and they're not interested and it's only about the high thc but eventually it will be about knowing your farmer it'll be about terpenes and cannabinoids and what are those things in that plant that really make you feel good? Yeah. And it won't be just about the high THC. Um, and I really look forward to that day. It's going to be cool. Yeah. Well, and that's whenever somebody writes us on the podcast like, oh, who sh- what weed should I buy? What should I do? And I'm like, you know, one of the greatest things is Instagram has basically, you know, they do shut down profiles every once in a while, but they've allowed farmers to post on there. And, you know, I'm sh- you got to wade your way through a lot of stuff sometimes, but you can get a real authentic vibe off of who the people are and what they're doing with their farm. And then I, up in Oregon, I love trying all the different flowers from specific farms. Like if I know the farm, that's who I'm shopping with. I want to try everything they're putting out because, you know, I know it will be a great product. So Yeah, and it does matter what you put in your body. Yeah. Yeah, right? (laughs) You are what you eat. You are what you smoke. Um, I've said that so many times. When I started hobby growing, my diet changed because it was so clear what I was putting into this plant affected it immediately and then i was like and then i'm as i'm eating skittles i was like oh okay (laughs) and you know i say that and and right now you know i I gained a few pounds and i feel like i'm a little bit out of shape or winded even though you know i worked all summer but what 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 i end up end up sacrificing over the summer months is really the thing that I should be valuing most, and that's my health. And and that just happens because I care so much about the plants, is that the plants come first. So it's five in the morning. It's it's one, two, three cups of coffee out there to see the plants. <laughs> yes. And I know we're, we're laughing, but that's the truth. So instead of having a well-balanced breakfast, you know, I'm already out Going in the on field. A run or I'm, yeah. I'm checking to see which ones need water, which ones don't, you know, mm. um, undoing the tarps and you know covering them up um it's just it's endless so it's lunchtime maybe come and grab whatever you can grab a protein bar or whatever so um 
And that it also includes, you know, doing my own laundry, taking care of my bills, you know, keeping maintenance on my truck. So a lot of those things for the, the summer months in, in Southern Humboldt really fall, fall by the wayside for a lot of us farmers. And then, you know, we'll, we'll play catch up here before tax time comes around and try to, where's, I got a bag full of receipts that I just throw things in. I hope the dog doesn't scatter them around. And so, um, business wise, I'm probably not the best in, and health wise right now, but, uh, We'll catch up on on both both fronts here pretty soon. I mean, uh, business wise, you're a farmer, so business to me is something entirely different. Sometimes it's like yeah. there's people who figure out taxes. As long as you save the receipts, it's fine. Yeah, you're right. But, you're right. You know that, and you know Kinda. the weed came out good. That's but all yeah, that really that's matters. All that matters. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just even like with that thought process is you are putting yourself into the plants. You know, the th- the sacrifices that you are making are for the plants. Like, I think the thing that kind of blew me away when I came out from the East Coast and started just working on regular farms is just seeing how much of that human being and their story is completely in, you know, the vegetables, the kale, whatever they're growing. You know, it's a part of them. They're giving that to the people who get to eat their food. And yeah, like, and if you've ever grown your own vegetable garden and you've tasted the difference between a store-bought carrot or a potato, those are two things that come to mind really quickly, the difference between a store-bought carrot and a one that you grow on the farm is amazing. And the same is with your cannabis. I mean, commercially grown um, cannabis that was fed something directly out of a jug versus regenerative-type grown cannabis um, is are two totally different products and there might be some people that prefer that other product but they'll also be those connoisseurs that really enjoy sun-grown craft cannabis and I've been trying to figure out a way really to describe to the consumer because that's the that's my 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 drive and my hope is to have that connection with the consumer and really to educate them what we're trying to do here and you know just like if you've been married for a long time or you've had a girlfriend for a long time and you wake up in the morning and all of a sudden, before she says one word, you can tell if she's grumpy or if it's <laughs> going to be a good day or a bad day. Well, the minute I walk out of the house at 5.30, 6 in the morning with my cup of coffee, I can look 100 yards up the hill and see one of the strains that I'm growing. And I can see maybe one little teeny droopy leaf or... Maybe she doesn't look right, and I know that, you know, I got to go check on her. There's a problem or something. So you build in the longer. So that's just not given for granted. But the, the more time I spend with each plant, the more characteristics that I learn that she, uh, you know, portrays a, throughout the year. And so mm. I get to learn each individual strain because every strain is totally different in what they need. And so... Having the nameplates on every plant, you know, I can talk to Rose, my girlfriend, and say, hey, can you go check uh, Marlene out or can you go look at Jason? Jason's uh, not looking so great. Yeah. So um, it's pretty special. It's really hard for me to explain to the extent how much it matters to spend that time with those those plants um, and what a difference it makes at the end of the day. Yeah. And I mean, that's uh, we sign off the podcast with Grow Your Own. And like that was one of the cooler things, especially in the first season, is it was just so many growers and people who, you know, it's their livelihood and their job being like, hey, you guys should go and try to grow your own also. You know, like you would think they'd be like, no, just buy my stuff. But, you know, it is a process in which you're kind of like, 
you guys just can't fully comprehend until you do it yourself and you can't see how much time and effort and the difference between just even a small amount of extra time that you put into it how much that ripples through and changes it you know and honestly some of the best weed i've ever had is grown at somebody's house yeah. Because you walk out at four or five o'clock in the morning and you're looking at the plants, you know, it's not like it's just a job that you go to clock out and then leave. It's something that you're constantly worried about. You're constantly tending to and, you know, helping that out. Yeah. And and most of the strains that I grow here, all of the strains here um, are strains that my mother used to grow back 45 years ago. And, you know, I've bred other strains um, to her original strain, but in her honor, since she passed away, I wanted to honor in that way that every strain here would have a little piece of her. And um, you learn how to grow specific strains. Like if you gave me some sour diesel, it'd probably do pretty shitty here. But, you know, like the white thorn rose or the Amalfi, which aren't going to sound familiar to, to you because those are strains that I created here. Those are strains that nobody else in the world grows. And, you know, there's an upside to that and a downside to that because nobody really knows what they are right now. But um, but the people that are experimenting around and, and, and tasting those products and, and, and having it make them feel good over the course of the, the year, um, you know, always return back and I can share new things with them. And it's just an amazing feeling. For so many years, we weren't able to share with... Um, the consumer what we we love to do and it's finally at this time we get feedback through social media that uh god you know i've always had a, a hurt knee or i can't sleep and you know i smoke some white thorn rose and man thank you so much and and at the end of the day for me that kind of gives me goosebumps and it gives me chills because i just want that relationship with the consumer yeah and um you know, I, I never, whenever I, I do meet the farmer events, I never try to push my own product. It's always about knowing your farmer and how they cultivate. Um, and, you know, that holds true still to this day. So, yeah, Well, as a consumer more than anything else in this world, the cannabis world, it was so clear to me every time I smoked somebody's stuff that grew it, like there is, there it's there's something to that. Like th there's something more to that. Like, like Mike is my buddy now, and I prefer his weed um, above and beyond any other weed. And I've smoked other weed that's better than yours sometimes, without a doubt. But it's like I live in Southern California, and sometimes I get frustrated because I'm like, am I gonna have to fly up to Oregon to get my homie's stuff? Because nothing down here I'm connecting with the way I should, and it's way <laughs> overpriced. I will that's <laughs> some I'll get into the Southern California stuff is, uh, but and then when I grew my own, it was just so clear that this thing was like, oh, this really does something to me in a way that nothing else has, like the medicine part, and then the the way it connects to your. Humanity, I guess, is a good way to put it, because it there's a balance to it that I, I felt that I've always been looking for. And then you start learning about our cannabinoid system, you're like, oh, so there is, like, science to it, too. I'm not just being a, a dingbat spirit, which I can lean on. I lean dingbat real quick. <laughs> 
uh, I enjoy magic, not like actual magic. I don't <laughs> like magicians; they're just liars. Uh, but I do, I do believe in a little bit of magic, and I think this. And I said this down at, at the bottom of the hill. I always enjoyed smoking it, and then when I grew it the first time, I was like, "Oh, this plant has something way more than we understand." And we've been pushing it aside. And I want, I kind of want to get to know it. Is. And then the more you get to know it, like anything you love, you're like, oh, I don't know anything. Exactly. The more I learn about this plant, I don't. And, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest, um, the biggest crime of all, I think, right now is, you know, because it's federally legal and because, um, the regulatory market now is here upon us. My, my biggest fear is that I've always considered Southern Humboldt as um, the Amazon of genetics um, <laughs> because I really believe that somebody right now is growing a strain that might have the ability to cure cancer, to cure COVID, or to cure some kind of autism that somebody has. And by the way they're regulating this market, it's really changing, as much as I don't want it to do, it's really changing the way we grow and how many strains we grow and when we harvest or how we harvest. Like if you harvest part of the plant, like I like to do two or three harvests, mm -hmm. if you don't harvest that whole plant within three days, now all of a sudden it's a different batch. And what that means is now I have to get a different COA test. That means I need to spend an extra thousand dollars to test that same plant because now they can are considered um, two different batches. And if I do three harvests, that's three batches. So for that one strain that I'm growing, it might cost me an extra $3,000 over the course of the year if I don't harvest within that period. And so I've limited the amount of strains that I grow here just because every different strain is a different test, which is thousand bucks. So if I'm growing 10 strains here on my 5,000 square foot farm, that's $10,000. And I know it's not a huge amount, but of, over the course of the year and you know, with, with all the other expenses, it starts to become something. I was so, gonna say like a, a, a lot of small amounts add up to a big amount. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like they want to sure. nickel and, and dime you and you're like, hey, this adds up, I can't. Yeah, no, for sure. So, you know, that's my biggest fear is that some of these strains that have been here since um, the, the early 70s and stuff that will no longer be grown and kind of disappear because of, of the changes that they're making in the regulated market. I mean, and I've always said that it takes you at least three seasons before you actually understand a strain. So then... To have like strains that have legitimately been through two generations of your family passed down to get to the knowledge of like you have an intimate knowledge of that strain that, you know, nobody else will ever have almost. And, you know, to think that, oh, that might go away because it might just be too expensive because it doesn't fit into this small box that the government's allowing this industry to be in. That's terrifying to me. You know, like as far as having that connection to those genetics. Yeah, for sure. And and the reason I grow the strains that I do here, um, it's because of the different terroir that I have. And, you know, um, so it's important that I har have strains that actually harvest earlier. Like you came here today and and you don't see any plants because I was fortunate enough to harvest in the middle of September 
to October 1st. And yeah, the reasoning's the same but different. Before, we used to try to harvest in early September because if we could trim it and we could get it on the market before the big flood hit, we could get a better price. Mm. You know, now it, it's more because, you know, I'm worried about the rains and stuff. So um, this property loses sunshine maybe at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. So I need to have those strains that really flower a little bit earlier and harvest a little bit earlier. So um, every different property is different and will grow different strains better or worse depending on where they're at so you have to learn that and you learn that by trial and error and by community and by sharing information with a tight-knit group and that's very valuable in the southern humboldt community and the success the success that we've had over the many years is by the community really being um, open and honest in sharing with the knowledge and the mistakes that they've learned over the years and that was always my favorite working at the grow shop that I did in Eugene is it's just everybody coming in, talking about their problems, talking about their success. But it was like this open thing where everybody would just want to share the information. You know, we all wanted to be better at what we were doing. And, you know, that was a huge backbone of the community because it was mostly people that just loved cannabis or like, hey, I just really want to smoke good cannabis, so let's all learn how to do this, you know? Yeah, and like in the regulated market, it's so important to know what is okay to spray on your plants or fertilize your plants or even some of the teas that you give them. There's certain, you know, heavy metals in some of those mm -hmm. teas that will give you a failed test and they have to destroy that crop. So um, by talking to other people that have had good experiences or bad experiences, we can take that knowledge and, and use it on our own farms. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then as far as talking about this farm, what is, you know, the, you were talking about the terroir. What is the history of this Yeah, I was going to say, like, I want, you mentioned your mom grew here. Like, could we, could you just take us back and then we go? F sure, sure. Um, I, love yeah, I hope it's not stuff. boring or anything, it's but never it, it's boring. been, <laughs> not be boring to us. Okay. It's been, it's been a, an adventure of, it's a one of a kind adventure that I know of and I wouldn't trade it for the world, even though some people might view it as, as some kind of catastrophe in a way. But, um, since I was five years old, my mother and my stepdad, and I lived here, and, you know, they were back to the landers. We grew our own vegetable garden. We had grapes, fruit trees. We, uh, we did about five or six different jobs over the course of the year to make a living um, and to be able to live in the country. We were um, commercial salmon fishermen, commercial crabbers, commercial um, albacore fishermen. We had a small nursery here. We sold and cut firewood in the wintertime and sold it for $100 a cord in town um, in the wintertime. Um, and we, my stepdad was a, a, a part-time logger, and we also grew cannabis. Um, and so really from as early as I can remember, I think 10 years old, I followed my mother around growing cannabis, taking care of the fruit trees, taking care of the vegetable gardens. And so really, I never saw a difference and it sounds really weird, and most people will call bullshit, but 
I never really saw a difference between a tomato plant and a cannabis plant. It was just a plant. And what it my did mother did a different thing than the other thing. It did a different thing, but the one thing in common that they both have or that they all have is the more time and energy and love that you put into those plants, the better they turn out in the end. And there was no replacing it. There was no buying something in a jug and dumping it in a tank and some magical thing happened at the end of the year you had this magical plant. It was the time and energy and love that you put into it that really allowed you to identify the different things that that plant needed and then in return that you could give that plant and it ultimately at the end of the day it would turn out better than if you, you did it another way. And so it was really my mother that, that gave me that start in loving plants and she was really my hero. Um, she just worked her whole life so hard to give me the best possible life. I know a lot of mothers do that, but my mother did that also. And she sacrificed, her hands bled, um, you know, fishing. And at the end of the day, she would come in and she would cook for me and she would do my laundry. And, you know, she really struggled with growing cannabis because we, we came from a Catholic family and, mm -hmm. um, her mother and father would have disagreed with it completely if they knew, but she kept that a secret from them. Mm -hmm. As we were taught as young kids growing up in Southern, Southern Humboldt is, was not to, to share that with the kids at school that we went to. So most of the parents in Humboldt County that you met at school, their parents were all carpenters because that's what we were told to say. So everybody's a carpenter. So that's, that's we, lived, we lived telling a lie about those kind of things or lived in secrecy for, for 15 to 20 years. And, you know, to, to speed it up a little bit, when I was 15 years old, it had been three or four years, five years that I was growing with my mother and I was building trust with her. She knew I knew how to check the water tanks, the emitters that... I could identify problems when they were happening or not happening. And so I really wanted my own 10 plants to grow unsupervised by mm -hmm. myself in the way I wanted. Because even though I was growing them with her, it was really her ideas and her techniques that I was was doing and I came up at that point with my own ideas and my own techniques and my own experiments that I wanted to do yeah. to see if I could grow a better plant of the same strain than she could. And we all so, rebel and want to do the same thing. Is <laughs> we're like, hey, I'm gonna show you. I know how to do this better. That's yeah. so funny. It's just it's just funny to hear it because like my dad was a football coach, so around this same time, he and I would argue about football. You know what I mean? Yep. About like, and it, looking back, I'm like, he different knew, plays to run. Oh, and just all of it. Ran <laughs> this place and then you look that, back yeah. on it, you're like, why was I arguing with him? I didn't know any. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it is that thing coming out of it's like, hey, that, is, that just makes me so happy that even a cannabis kid is like, <laughs> just give me my plant to yeah. grow. It's almost like it's a fundamental part of, uh, of becoming the human an adolescent. Ex exactly. <laughs> so when I was 15, she finally gave in after I nagged and nagged and nagged. And she said, you know what? I've come up with a, a solution. I'm going to give you 10 plants to grow your own way. But at the end of the year, you know, we'll get rid of that for you. But any money that you make as a 15-year-old kid you can't use on 
like a brand new motorcycle or anything fun. It has to go for a college education. It has to go to some kind of investment for the future. And I think that was really looking back on it, her way of making it okay for somebody that grew up as a Christian child Mm -hmm. to be okay with saying, you know what? I know it's illegal, but I'm going to let you do it because I'm going to justify it because it's all going to your college fund or this or that. So as long as you're doing this thing, it has to be for the betterment of society and you. Exactly. 100%. And she was always looking out for my my well-being. So, Well, that sounds like she's not even – and I think as a society we're losing – this is a different podcast, but she understood the base – of all religion, which is like taking care of each other and community. Mm -hmm. And even though some of the laws may not be exactly what we agree with or anything, we can, as long as we're doing things for the right reason. Yeah. And you know, that, that was, yeah, that was exactly how she thought. And she, you know, as, as far as, you know, she always had taught me your word is your bond. You know, this community relies on trust and if you ever fail that community or her by lying, you break that trust, and that trust is really hard to repair. And so that was something I really took in, and she really instilled in me all the time. And so at the end of that, uh, my, my 15th birthday, I had made, uh, or that summer growing, I made 12 pounds, and she ended up selling it for me. And I think back then, and we're talking... Uh, you know, 1975, um, excuse me, uh, 1975, yeah, 75, 78. Um, it was like 1200 a pound or something like that. So I made, you know, 10 or 15 grand and I put a, a down payment on my first piece of property, 11 acres along the South Fork of the Eel River. And I was so young that she had to actually co-sign on the <laughs> deed of the property for me to get that piece of property. Whoa. And from that point forward, it was on. Yeah, I mean, I'm addicted now. <laughs> wow, I got land, you guys! It was just <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, I don't know what I would have done if one of my friends at 16 being like, "I just bought some land," and I'd be like, "Oh shit, what can we do out there?" <laughs> yeah. So you know, and and at the same time as I was doing it, so were all my friends that I was going to school with, and. um did you all figure out at once that none of you really knew how to be do carpentry work? Yeah, <laughs> when you hired like, people hey, to I do carpentry. You're like, yeah, I don't know how this all works at well, all. You man. got a hammer? What's a hammer? No. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that that uh, and and that wasn't shared with a large group of people. Mm-hmm. That was then narrowed down to maybe a group of five or ten people that were were kids that I hung out with that my family we're really tight with and that we knew that we could trust Yeah, um, because loose lips sink ships. And that's what, that was a way that a lot of people got busted back then, even though in, you know, 75, 78, the, the enforcement wasn't that bad, but you once in a while saw airplanes flying over doing aerial surveillance and, and helicopter would come over once in a while, but they were mainly targeting large, large grows. And like I said before, we were just trying to, you know, make 20, 30, $40,000 to supplement our income 
just so we could make it to the next year and do it all over again. Yeah. Um, because it wasn't really about making money. And I was always taught that, you know, money doesn't make people happy and it still holds true today, even Amen. more so than ever. And um, it was just something that you did along with crabbing, you know, fishing, you know, cutting wood, you know, it was supplemental income based. Exactly. Um, for sure. So um, I continued to grow. The next year I grew on that piece of property. I'd put a down payment on. Um, a friend of mine, one of my best friends, would come over once a week. You know, we're 16-year-old kids, so we're, we're excited about this. It's a basically a cat and mouse game every single day from the beginning of uh, May to the end of October with the enforcement teams. And as they did certain things and became... Um, started to do things um, consistently one way, we would change our growing techniques and do things differently to av avoid any kind of eradication. And then, you know, I think we made like 20 or 30 grand as a, as a 16-year-old kid. It was That's like a million could, dollars. <laughs> it was a million dollars, and we could go fishing, and we could go surfing. We could do whatever we want. And, and it you was, were a it, landowner at that time, so you also had other responsibilities. You could vote. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but as time went on, now if we're getting into like 1985, enforcement started to get a lot worse. Is that Ron the time did of you camp? Yeah. Well, Ronald Reagan at that time declared to war on drugs. Yeah. And yeah, now there's now there's multiple different agencies in the air doing aerial surveillance. There's Comet, there's Met, there's Camp, there's Green Sweep, there's Black Hawk helicopters. And ironically, how it's and machine guns, machine guns and 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 convoys that would show up, you know, the, the planes and stuff would would point them to the gardens. They would be dropping guys in with off of wires off of the helicopters into the gardens. Um, so, yeah, it started to become scary and we had to change the way we grew. We could no longer grow out in the open. We had to start growing underneath trees, in trees, under different types of manzanita and white thorn bushes so that they couldn't directly see the color of the cannabis plant from uh -huh. the air. It had to be through trees and they had to be right over it. <laughs> and um, it was a complete cat and mouse game and we were good at it because, well, some of us were better at it than others, <laughs> as you'll hear. But... Um, it was an everyday thing. It was we woke up in the morning, we listened for the phone to ring because the minute the convoys left Eureka substation, we followed them all the way down 101 until they got to Southern Humboldt and found out where they went because we were a tight community that communicated with each other and looked out for each other. Um, so, but you were basically at that time already farming for a decade. You were already farming cannabis at that point for a decade. How does that feel to be, to have it just explode and be like, oh shit, these guys are really taking it serious. You know, you talk about it as being a cat and mouse game and then it's like, oh, you guys are going fucking nuts. Where, where, why? What's up with this? Yeah. And it, you know, I jumped quite a bit forward, but it really took maybe five years from 1978 or seven years, like to 1985, really to that, really to progress to that extreme. Okay. But then what had happened was all of a sudden 
the federal government started giving these different agencies money. Mm -hmm. And the way the federal government works is you have to expend all that money, you know, spend all that money at the end of the year or else you don't get more money the next year. And so what we were, were, how we followed them and what we knew would happen is they'd start down in San Diego work those hills there. They'd come up to like the Santa Cruz Mountains, Santa Barbara, Southern Mendocino County. You know, now they're starting to get into a lot more, um, a lot more plants and their numbers are going up, which equates to more money. And so, so they're eradicating and this is maybe late June, early July. They're in Mendocino, then they're in Northern Mendocino, then they're over in Trinity and then they're in Northern Humboldt. Well, at the end of the year, starting, I think, as early as maybe the third week of July, maybe early August, they spent the rest of their summer in Southern Humboldt. So there was times where there was five different agencies with helicopters and planes and convoys in Southern Humboldt County working all different sections of, of, of the county, the east side, the west side. And, you know, it became pretty scary. Um, but it really forced us to, like I said before, change our growing techniques. And the enforcement was a little bit too much for my parents. And they just said, you know what? We've been doing this long enough. We really wanted to follow. They wanted to follow their dream and their love. And that was on the ocean. And so they bought a commercial albacore boat. And they sailed around the world commercial albacore fishing and left me back at the, at the farm. Uh-huh. And they... They were really on the water for 11 months out of the year. They went from San Diego to the South Pacific, to China, to Alaska, to Washington, to Oregon. Mm-hmm. And really, there was only a month or two out of the year that they would come back and check So they just kind of migrated with the tuna, huh? Yeah, because the, the, the ocean, the commercial fishing world is another amazing community that once you experience you really can fall in love with that community and you know coming jumping off your your boat and taking a dinghy over to somebody else's boat when you're 500 miles out to sea and leading your boat adrift and going to spend an afternoon or an evening with with fellow fishermen it's a pretty amazing experience but that's a whole nother story (laughs) Um, that sounds amazing (laughs) i was just yeah i was like can we do that can we do it yeah (laughs) so so my best friend and I are here left left uh, by ourselves to go hog wild and to, to explore everything that my parents had taught me. And, you know, we wanted someday to, to own a house and we wanted to have our own truck and we wanted those kind of luxurious things that cost money. Mm-hmm. And so we started growing together and... Enforcement was so bad then that we were growing underneath some white thorn grove underneath the trees. And so underneath the trees and the white thorn, there's not as much light. So a plant, which typically I can grow out in the open and get five to 10 pounds, depending. Yeah. Now I was getting an ounce of plant. So aha moment, you just put more plants in a closer vicinity, mm-hmm. more like a, an indoor operation, mm-hmm. and you can get just as much per square footage as I did outdoor. Yeah. But what that did was that made my plant count a lot higher. And we were really naive. I mean, we grew up kids. We knew all about cannabis plants. We knew about vegetable gardens and fruit trees, but we had not a clue when it came to the different laws that were out there and And state and federal laws were different. And we really truly believed that 
if you got busted for growing cannabis, no matter how many plants in Humboldt County for the first time offense, that you got probation. So it was always mine and all my friends' big picture plan was if you got in trouble, you would get probation and then you would decide how to go forward in your life from that point forward. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for us, um, an old man down our road turned us in and we ended up getting busted with a thousand twenty-four plants, five hundred of the plants were in the bushes, dead. But according to the federal government, anything with a root ball, whether or not it's alive or dead, is considered to be a plant, and it's also two point two pounds a plant. So Jesus. So we were. So one morning at six in the morning, I had thirty federal agents come to my door, and put a nine millimeter in my head. And did they me, knock? They didn't knock. I actually heard somebody driving up my driveway fast, and I was pissed. So I ran out there because I was going to chew somebody out, and I wasn't chewing anybody out, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, hey, guys. Whoa, okay, you're in camo. What's up with that? Nobody God. comes up here in camo. So, um, so they, they, they served a search warrant. They never put handcuffs on me. They searched this property and my house. They they took some evidence, some seeds, some trimming scissors, which I'll explain later how terrible that turned out to be. But um, then they left at the end of the day, and they gave me a little thing that looked like a yellow speeding ticket. And they said, okay, thank you very much. And so I went and talked to a lawyer, and he said, oh, no, don't worry. They'll probably be back. And so it wasn't for a year and a half later oh that they showed back up with an arrest warrant and i wasn't home so i still i got to go down to the federal courthouse building post bail my mom put up her house and everything she owned three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars for Jeez. a 22 year old kid first time nonviolent offender it just seemed like so so much money three hundred seventy-five thousand. good god and like we're at this point we're naive we don't have a suit i get a federal uh lawyer and he says hey you guys got to buy a suit you got to come into the courtroom show respect and i said well just so you know i want i'm guilty they, they had been there they had filmed us there was no way we were getting around it but it was really my my naiveness and my hope that i could explain to this judge <coughs> really what kind of people my co-defendant or my best friend and I were, and that we would never hurt anybody. And I just truly believe that if he knew who we were as people, that we could never get that much time because that much time that we were looking at, and I'm talking 10 years to mm -hmm. life, that's for murderers, that's for rapists, that's for people that do harm to other people. And that wasn't us. So I thought it was just the judge just didn't know who we were. And so we had to our real fight was to fight for who we were, for our integrity, for who we were as people, who my parents were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the prosecutor, now at one time the judge asked, could I have some clarification what the bud part of the plant is? And at that time I knew how screwed I really was. Yeah. And the prosecutor was very good. He was trying to be a judge. He was able to say that, well, we found these 13 pairs of scissors in your house, so you must have had 13 workers. And, you know, the scissors were $2 a piece. Yeah. You throw the scissors away. Yeah. Anyways, um, so long story short, at the end of the day, going to court for four years um, 
which was the worst part of my whole sentence. You know, the, I had 100 people from this community come down to the courthouse from Humboldt County. And, you know, the judge stood up and he said that I, I really do not want to give you the sentence, but my hands are tied and I have no other choice because of the mandatory minimums. And he had to give us 10 years in jail. And between the, you know, federal, federal, federally being sentenced, you have to do 85% of your time. And I had five years probation. So this, this fight for this cannabis plant and for my life was really a 17 year long journey. And so what's at stake for me and what's at stake for this community? You know, everything's at stake. What you guys are doing, what other people are doing by sharing our stories in the meeting of what we're doing and what we believe in and what we've been doing our whole life, you know, that, that is what's going to dictate whether or not we survive this regulatory market. And, and ironically, after, after all that time and after everything that we went through, um, I'm a permitted by the county and I'm permitted by the state. And, you know, the first day I walked into prison, sorry, I'm kind of rambling on, but no, the, 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 the first day I walked into jail, I saw so many bitter and angry people. And I promised myself because I was a pretty positive person and, you know, having gotten 10 years in jail and getting to self-surrender and walking to jail and having the prison camp I went to in Lompoc, I had the longest prison sentence in there. And How um, I was 24 years old by the time I got in there. Or excuse me, 29 by the time I went to court and did all, you know. So when it started, you were 24. When you I was 24, ended up self-surrendering in 96, and then got out in, in 2004. So That's an entire lifetime of, like you said, you know, even before prison, the time spent fighting this, having your community travel a very far distance. You know, I want to make sure our listeners understand how much of a long distance it is to drive down there. Yeah, it's four hours. You yeah. know, and, and they weren't staying there. They were coming back. Yeah, but, I mean, to take that time to do that, you know, it's that is so horrific to have to even go through that before. Well, when I got sentenced and when my co-defendant got sentenced, we were so happy to go to jail. It was exhausting for four years to go every month to federal courthouse building in San Francisco and try to share with the judge who we were and to fight for who we were. It was by the time going to court was over, we were relieved in a weird way. That sounds t weird. I get um, it. But we were exhausted. It didn't matter how much time. Because when you get 10 years in jail that young, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You don't know if you're going to make it out. And that was truly how I felt. But I did see a lot of bitter and angry people um, in there. And I refused to let that overcome me. And I knew what I did was illegal. We could argue whether or not I deserved that much time or not. But um, I wasn't going to allow myself to come out bitter and angry because that would otherwise be a life sentence. And I see a lot of people like that. And, and you know, I feel for those people. Um, and my co-defendant's actually one of those people. And he has a hard time letting it go. But uh, unfortunately, when I was, the hardest thing I dealt with while I was in jail was my mother passed away a year after I was in jail. And, you know, you're by yourself. Um, it, it, w it was a tough time, but... Um, 
this community ultimately was there for me. I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters. And it was just a confirmation that everything that my mother told me about money doesn't make you happy was just reaffirmed by this community. And when I showed back up after being away for 3,000 days, there was, um, <laughs> there was 50 people here from this community and really helped me get my life back in order. And, you know, it sounds like, well, you know, you're back out and it's easy, but I had no toothpaste, I had no toothbrush, I had no money. Uh, everything I had here had been stolen, so I didn't have a plate to eat on or a fork or a barbecue, and they helped me, you know, really get all that stuff back in order, clean up this property, and, and really, it was their way, and I've evaluated and looked at that, besides them loving me who, who I was, it was always that thing that my mother instilled in me for so long was trust and trust and, you know, your word is your bond. And that community trusted me, and they knew they could trust me with their life because we all did the same thing. We all knew about each other's places, and really you have to evaluate who you are as a person and until your feet are put to the fire, you really never know who will be able to hold their mud or not rat on somebody else because I knew when I was going in there, I was coming out to nothing. And that's, I had to really, really think about that because everybody that gets a federal sentence like that is usually offered a downward departure. I didn't have to do any time. And, you know, I sucked it up and I knew what I did. I knew what the, the consequences were about, you know, I could get in trouble. And um, it was just reconfirming with them that I was a stand-up person and I wasn't a rat. And they were just showing their appreciation for that. And um, they, didn't, yeah. they didn't even have to do that when you came out. Like, that's what... I think especially for me coming from the East Coast where everybody lives on top of everybody, everybody's really close, but ultimately there isn't fundamentally some of those aspects of community. And then you come out to a place like this that's so expansive and so wide, but then the bonds between you and your neighbor who are 30 miles away are so much tighter, so much more you know, where you care and live and die based upon that other person. That's the thing that really drew me to the West Coast ultimately is like the sense of community that's so much stronger than anything I'd ever experienced, you know. And that's, that's truthfully, you know, having grown up here on this property, of course, it's hard, it would be hard to leave, but it's really, it wouldn't be leaving this property that would be the biggest loss for me. It'd be leaving this community because to this day, you know, some of them have left, but there's still so many very, very special people, and that's really what makes Southern Humboldt magical. And I can tell you all these stories, but to come here and really to experience the community firsthand really is the magical part and the, the reason so many people come here and want to move here. And, you know, just for example, in the past, you could have never called me up the night before and shown up at my house. But because, because people in this community had already co-signed with you and said, these guys are cool, they're carrying a good message, they're really trying to share the truth in who we are, um, you know, that word had already spread from northern to southern Humboldt that quick. 
And so I'm, I'm happy you guys came here today. I'm happy that you're helping share the story of, of the small craft, sun-grown cannabis farmer. Um, and it, I never wanted just to be about Southern Humboldt because really the Emerald Triangle, all of us have gone through this, this, this really tough time for the last 40 years. And it, what happened to me and my co-defendant really could have happened to any one of my friends for sure. You got ratted on. I got ratted on, and I was naive not to, to really know the consequences. I could have really gotten life in jail, and, you know, CNN, NBC, Marcus Lemonis with The Prophet have all been here with a couple thousand plants that this farm has on it, usually during the summertime. And it was this one interview with CNBC or something that we were sitting in there, and it, a helicopter flew over, and the reality really was that to this day, it's federally legal, and if they were to come in for poking the tiger or for whatever reasons they want, whatever the hundred different reasons they could come in and bust this farm, I could get life in prison. And as much as we like, like to, to shed that off and say, no, that couldn't happen, it's legally, it could happen in the same way I felt when that happened to me before that I could never get that much time it's the same thing that could happen to this day so what's on the line everything's on the line and believe that <laughs> well that's the thing I just keep thinking about when what your mother said about your word is your bond my grandfather came from where Alvin C. York the World War One uh, hero like he knew him grew up, growing up it's these type of communities I relate to because it's where my family came from in East Tennessee. And then when your mom said, you just don't lie. That's what, that's the only, it, that was the only thing I ever saw my grandfather get upset about was if someone accused him of lying or would say the word liar to him. That was a big deal that I didn't understand until I made mistakes in my 20s. To see, like, doing things for the wrong reasons. and you, Or, you know, you know what, going about things that that hit me. Where it's like, man, if you just don't lie, people can't fuck with you. <laughs> right? This is who I am. Accept me for who I am or don't. And no, that's don't. okay either way. It's um, that simple. But, like you said, that's what builds community. Yeah. And, you know, we were all brought up really just to care about one another. And there was always this thing, uh, we called it the red alert, that if any of us at any time of the day or night called with a red alert, because we didn't like to talk over the phone, so we would just say, hey, you know, I got a red alert going on. Boom. They drop everything and they come. And, you know, that's, that's hard to find people that will do that because it, it happened a few times, whether or not a helicopter flew over your grow room and you thought they were coming the next day and we had to tear it down to the, the studs or move a whole hillside of plants and, and grow pots from one, one side of the mountain to the other because they hovered it. Um, there was just numerous things that happened all throughout the, the, the 40 years I've been growing. And um, it always came down to relying on your community and trust. And they haven't disappointed me to this day. So, um, Well, I told Mike coming in, uh, I, was like, I was like, here's how these little things work. I was like, we're going to meet some people that I've already built trust with in Northern Humboldt. I was like, and once they see what we're going to be about, then it'll open up. Word of mouth. And I was like, that's how it works. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm a stand-up comedian, so that community is also pretty small overall. So it's fun to watch young people come in sometimes and try to throw their weight around or act like they know what stuff, and you're just like, oh, baby doll, no. This is like yeah, all of the, us have to make same, three phone calls and you're done. Yeah, in the same sense, though, you can identify to that one very special one that's on that right track. Yes. And it's just looking, you know, and so he you knows. You just pull them aside and you're like, hey, cool it. Do this, this, and this. And they're like, oh, it's a th- you're, you just got to point. And then some people are like, we got to get rid of this thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's what we were. We're also trying to get across that you you were talking about you've met with these politicians and these other people trying to educate them about because part of what we have to you can't deny and we're talking to Nat Pennington at Humboldt because during while we were interviewing them you heard chopper sounds and then they stopped talking for real quick (laughs) that's it was great. It was like one of those things that's doing. Day, the, it was part, and they were just us yep. that lived that. And just immediately, the, the him and his daughter looked at each other, and then they were they realized it was a the way the chopper sounded was okay. Exactly, he's, he just <laughs> stood awesome. up. And he's got a helicopter. We'll post the, the picture. At that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it's that. Um, shit, I forgot where I was going with that because I got excited. Just community. Well, that community. The community telephone line and just, you know, I've seen that at least in Eugene because Eugene's a very small growing community. You know, once the wreck came, everybody who went wreck, we were all like, oh, yeah, we've all known each other. Well, oh, no I know where I'm just going okay, with this. You go. It was that Nat and I talked about that, too, was that you can't, because you don't like a certain aspect of the whole part of it, you can't push that aside and not deal with it. Like, the government and the federal government and the state government, that you have to deal with them. That has to happen, because if you don't... Well, that's kind of... There's a couple funny... <laughs> there's a couple couple funny things, and ironically, now that I've done my time, um, you know, Gavin Newsom's office is with Nicole Elliott, who's the head of the cannabis division for uh-huh. Gavin. Um, she's been here to this farm... Um, we sat down at this very table together and, and got to talk and, you know, it got really emotional. She got, uh, you know, I told her a couple stories about making a difference in people's lives and, and really that's what I want this farm to, to, to represent and to do. And, you know, there was a time where she hugged me and she was crying and in another world that would have never happened. And, you know, when I was in jail, we all have the ability to touch somebody and to make them smile. Whether or not you're a cannabis grower, or whether or not you're a checker at the supermarket, and life is too short really not to, to bring a smile to somebody's face. And, you know, in jail, we had that ability, and we did that continuously. And I made such a, my co-defendant and I made such a, an impression on the, the prison warden and the guard that was responsible for watching us that we built such a tight relationship, even though it was them and us, it's still, they knew deep down inside that we would never hurt anybody. And they respected us for that. And last year they emailed me and they asked to come up because I think they felt so guilty 
for what had happened to us and who we were as people, as they learned who we were as people, they felt really bad themselves. And so they asked to come up and they both sat here at this table, the warden of Lompoc and this prison guard. And we just laughed together and told stories of some of the times we had together. And then at the end of the day, they, they left, they went to Garberville and they called me back up and they say, hey, do you think we could come back and and it's legal to grow six personal plants. Can we get 12 <laughs> plants? They came back to the farm. We loaded up these 12 plants, and they drove them back to Lompoc. Because they're both retired now, so yeah. it's, it's safe, and it's legal, and it's all good. But um, it was pretty pretty amazing. And then Nicole Elliott invited me to a closed-door session with the National Guard, all the BBC, all the different regulatory agencies, because it's so important for me to build relationships with them so we have that ability to at least communicate to them what's working if we both if it's them and us always it will never work so yeah i'm fortunate enough to have a platform now because of what i've gone through um that i you know i have a great relationship with department of fish and wildlife and um, we've done some promotional videos here on your way home um there's a couple billboards that California, uh, the CDFA, the regulatory agency for this cannabis division of the state of California, has put up on the highways because we, we've built some relationships together and we're really trying to break that stigma that they're just out to bust us. Yeah. Whether or not they are or not. Well, but um, that's the first step. Um, you got to educate but them. But we have to communicate to them what's working and what's not working if we're going to make any progress. So if we. Or if I have to be the first one to start those that open communication, then I'm willing to do that. And same with Fishing Wildlife and, and any other agency that wants to come here and really learn about what we're doing and really ask the question to themselves is, why is this the most highly regulated farming crop in the world? It's yeah. just a plant. More than opium. <laughs> right? So... Um, one of the things that, you know, especially being a city boy and coming out to farming, but like knowing farming, the thing I love the most about farmers is they'll nonchalantly in stories, just like gloss over a task that is massive, a huge undertaking where you're literally fighting nature, you're fighting all these different things and you're like, it's all right, I got it, I'll figure it out. But to hear you talk about going into prison and the way that you thought about it being like well i'm just not gonna let this hurt me i'm not gonna let this change who i am as a person and then to even have the forgiveness and understanding in your heart to sit with the warden and the prison guard here like you gloss over it as like it's just what needs to be done the same way where you're like oh yeah sometimes fires come and we just need to grow through it sometimes mole comes and we just need to grow through it and to me, I think that's a that's a resilient part of farmers that the world doesn't even understand. Well, because I, I've, I've realized for a long time that no matter how bad we think we have it as as people, there's always somebody that has it a lot worse. There's always somebody that is just fighting every day to to find a meal or to have clean water. And, you know. I'm done feeling sorry for myself. I have it so good. I, I feel very fortunate. And um, Do you ever think, because I do this a lot, uh, every morning I get up, I think about 
where I was last year or the year before that and just know, like, oh, I'm a little better. I'm, I know I'm smarter. Do you know what I mean? Or I think it's just a perspective thing where it's, like, I remember where I was, like, just pursuing stand-up, like pursuing something silly to most people, but it was my passion and still is that I was willing to do it for f- I was willing to pay to do it if you if you want to do the fucking math for 10 years. Well, how did you get there? You got there the same way that you got there and I got there is I made so many damn mistakes the whole way through and we all are not perfect. We're all going to learn from our mistakes and as long as you don't let those things get you down, you know? Yes. We all have a story, we all have a journey. Nothing's right, nothing wrong. It, it's just our story. That's and when we're old and sitting on the couch, we're going to be telling that story to somebody that hopefully wants to hear it. It's, this, it's that wonderful thing. If you find your purpose, nothing's going to really stop you if you're doing it for the right reasons, which is to fulfill yourself just in, on the inside. And I think that's uh, it's a weird thing for someone... I think this is the the basis of the podcast, and I talk this I talk about this a lot. Sorry, you guys that are regular listeners, but it's the same. Once I started growing it, it gave me the same fulfillment that stand up did in this different way. Where I was always knew like stand up was something. Eventually, I would let go of because as you get older, there's only so much you can say. Where I knew my chapter two if you will or whatever metaphor you want to use i knew that plant had something to do with my future every other thing that may you know that i tried to recreationally have a good time with i was like i don't like this this will eventually go away this will pass pot was the only thing the first time i smoked i was like oh i'm never not gonna do this (laughs) (laughs) yeah well in the same sense i imagine when you're standing up on stage in front of a bunch of people and you tell a really good joke and you make people smile and you make people laugh. I mean, that kind of service is amazing. And, and it wasn't really until just recently that we've become legal that we could share this, this, this plant that we've been growing our whole life, that we've been so proud of and, and so excited about. It's just really recently that we've been able to share it with the communities and the retail shops and the consumers and really get feedback and validate what we've done for so long. And it feels so good when one of those people hits you up on Instagram and say, man, I, I haven't slept in years and I smoked some of that uh, white thorn rose or whatever it might be. And man, I feel good. And you know how good that makes a person feel. And it's just, I don't know, it's very hard to describe, but that's what keeps me going. That's why I'm still doing the same thing I've been doing for 45 years. That right there now is the drive, making a difference in people's lives. And, um, and money can't make you happy. I promise you that. Was, I know that for a fact. Was there ever a moment, like we mentioned earlier, you know, it's still federally illegal. You still could get fucked with. Was there ever a moment when you came out where you were like, I just, maybe I'll just become a commercial fisher. Maybe I'll just, you know, become an actual carpenter. When I came out of jail. Yes, when you came out. So when I came out of jail, I had five years probation. um, And it's 
you know, it's different than state probation because cannabis is still federally legal. So I couldn't even grow under 215 law then because it was federally legal. So for two and a half years, we worked, my best friend and I worked together um, as landscapers and we did lawns and towns and hedges and just made beautified a lot of different things. And um, at the end of the two and a half years, I got off probation a little bit early and I immediately went to a doctor and got my, uh, my medical card and started growing small amount of cannabis. Um, like the day, like, Literally like, the day you got off. Or the probation. day before. <laughs> um, you know, right there, I tried to time it. Yeah, um, might have snuck yeah, one yeah. or two in there a little early, but um, I pulled it off. And um, and we, where were we going? The, just the, that the thought process of being like, the federal government could still come in and fuck with me, but... Yeah, so, you know, it's... I, I, I can't, I'd be lying if I said I still don't worry about it today. So I'm very careful about, you know, what I say... Um, about the federal government, I think uh, I'm hope I'm hopeful that they're going to figure it out, and in, it will no longer be a Schedule One drug, and um, the laws will ease up. They'll they'll let a lot of these people that are still in jail for a long, long, long time for growing a cannabis plant. Maybe they'll let them out because it's really it's it's criminal to have them sitting in there while we're out here and now it's legal in the Amen. state of California and it's just it you know you got places like the last prisoners project That's, we promote the shit out of yeah in the yeah. willies reserve team who who I was very fortunate to meet several years ago through my distributor um, and a lot of my product that I grow here on this farm ended up in the Willie Nelson Willie's Reserve jar. And, you know, nice. I know those that was a very proud day and is still a very proud moment in my life to, to have met Willie and to really learn his values and who he stands for because, like, he's a, he's a true hero. And, uh, he's a bigger badass than people realize. Oh, yeah. Yeah, besides standing on the right White House roof and smoking a joint, you know, he's done a lot of very unselfish things for people, and I want to be Willie. He's made it okay, and in this grandiose way that would have taken us three our whole lives. Just him being like, I smoke it. <laughs> exactly. Um and I know exactly what you mean about him. There, he is a special, special human being. I did a thing for their luck reunion and got to talk to him on the phone for this thing, and then I made him genuinely laugh, and I literally just almost walked off the set because I was like, oh, well, that's all I needed. That's all I came <laughs> That's just a chuckle from Willie. <laughs> yeah, I don't give a fuck about any of you guys. I made him laugh. Yeah, he invited myself uh, and another farmer to the luck reunion a couple years ago, so I was fortunate to fly there and... It was amazing. Who was the headline? Who? I mean, he's the headline. Who else was there? Uh, you know, both both of his sons were there. I can't. Was Margo there? Margo Price was there, yeah. I was there. Two years ago? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I was there. That's where, okay. You were well, I was about, backstage. You were probably out in the public. No, I was backstage too, motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> right I'm on. cool too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. You want to talk about synergy, about this whole thing. That's where I had met briefly... Chad from Humboldt Marijuana Company, and I was walking through. No one knew I was there other than the Matt, the guy that runs Luck, and then a 
Margo and some of her band. Um, and I was walking through, and I heard someone say my name. And when someone says your name and people don't know you're there, I was just immediately like, I don't like this. <laughs> this is bad. I don't like people <laughs> Don't knowing. look. Yeah, and then I slowly <laughs> turned, and it was Chad. And I was like, hey, dude, we talk, blah, blah. So that, and you were there, too. It's just, a, and Chad was kind of our Such first. a small industry so far. <laughs> well, and it helped us this whole season. Yeah. That's so interesting. I'm sorry. You know, I wanted just to, to, to reflect back on something about, you know, not feeling sorry for myself while I was in jail and, and not really dwelling on all the negative was, you know, it was really brought to my attention by other inmates that the, the, the true crime, you know, wasn't only on those people that we left out here. You know, it was our family and our friends too, you know, they suffered more than we did. It, it became very monotonous in there where every day was the same. We knew Sunday was chicken day and we were all excited about it. And, you know, we got to play sports and we went to work and we made 13 cents an hour and every day was the same. So we didn't have to worry about bills. We didn't have to worry about anything, but they were out here and they were worried about us um, every day for that many for a long time and so I feel very guilty for what I put them through and really they were the reason I ended up becoming a permitted farm was because two weeks before Humboldt County ended their permitting um, application time uh, there was several helicopters that flew up and down the county um, all every single valley and I woke up one morning to a Blackhawk helicopter sitting over my, my house, a hundred feet, every window was vibrating. And I called my third party compliance person at that point and said, you know, let's put in the application, let's sign up. And, um, you know, it worked out, but, uh, I remember thinking that, and he was like, I can't hear you. It's loud. <laughs> those same people that were, were probably once there for me. I don't know if they could have gone through that again, because it was an emotional roller coaster for them and and you know my uncle who I, I considered to be like my father um him and his two daughters for eight years when they every vacation they ever went in on and every thanksgiving dinner and christmas dinner while i was away in jail they had cut out these heads and pictures of my face and they took me on they took me on every vacation every Thanksgiving dinner and every Christmas dinner with them, and they sent me those pictures of me sitting at the table with them while I was in jail. So I did it for them as much as I did it for myself. And those are the people that really allowed me to be okay today. And that's why when you walk around this farm and you see the name tags on every planter box, it's because of those people that have had such a positive effect on my life and really gave me the ability to be here today. And those are the true heroes. And that's the reason we have to get those people out of jail because of those families and those kids and those children that are wanting dad or mom to come home. Um, so we can't stop fighting. We can't stop putting pressure on the the, the senators and, and re whoever that can change the laws. Yeah. No, that's... Sorry, I kind of jumped back and forth, but no, I, it was an important Your part. Story is, that that needs to be said ultimately, because it is. You know, I came out here and I was just like, I'm gonna grow some weed. I'll do some stuff. 
And just to think of, like, for my mom and for my family, if anything had happened, you know, it wasn't until later when I could be more honest with my mom. She told me about how worried she was throughout the entire process, being like, oh, well, you just went off for two months and didn't have cell phone reception. You told me everything would be fine, but I don't know, you know, that there is, you know, repercussions even if you know that what you're doing is the right thing there's all these outside parties that are playing with your life to a certain extent that you know has repercussions that you can't even think of in the moment when you're making those decisions well on top of all that we can talk about the prison industrial complex in our country my cousin uh second or third um, but close enough in our family when i was 15 ended up killing a guy and going to jail. And that, you know, did he need to go to jail? That's a whole other thing uh, because that story's all murky, you know, self-whatever. But people don't realize when they're like, put him in jail, send him away. Like, that's not just them. Like, I watched it affect people in my family where, yeah, he did do that, and he had to go away for a while. But my uncle had to go up there, every, and then they move him around. Then my uncle had to go somewhere else, and we had to, like, it is a thing that people say so nonchalant about sending them to jail, put them in jail for this, put them in like, Do you understand what that means? And a lot of it, a lot of people aren't as strong mentally or have the community that you had to keep you there. A lot of them are in there by themselves, and they don't come out the same or better. They come out worse. I think of this guy that I was flying back from Spokane, Washington. I used to live in Seattle. I was doing a show, and it's a 45-minute flight from Spokane to Seattle. There was a guy I was sitting next to. I read people really well. That's what I do for a living. It was very clear he had just gotten out of prison. He hadn't said anything, but the way he was dressed, there's a certain – if we want to be honest, the way their skin and all that, especially right out of... Absolutely. No, you're right on track. There's this certain look that they have, the way they dress and put things together. I was just like, and his shoes really gave it away, the way he had put his laces and stuff. And he was just jumpy. You could tell he was... And I just kind of put my hand next to his, and I was like, hey, man, it's going to be all right. I was like you just get out he's like how'd you know i was like you just have a vibe dude and we just talked and you could see he's he didn't know how they they sent him out he had been out for like an hour and a half before he's on an airplane it was wild i was like where are you going he's like i have a friend who's gonna pick me up he's like i was like i was just like godspeed man you just scared to death he didn't know what to i didn't know what to do those first couple days i was like scared to death but but he was you could tell he was thankful that i was just kind of like hey all right. And, you know, I would really love to believe, and, you know, I've done the time, I did probation, I've done everything, crossed the T's, dotted the I, I'm a permitted farm. Well, for my 40th birthday party, that uncle I told you that carried me around all over the, the world with him um, wanted to really take me to New Zealand and for a 40th, uh, for a, um, a fishing trip. Mm-hmm. And so... I was like, yeah, let's go. That's great. That, what a great birthday gift. And so, you know, we talked about it months and months ahead of time, and we bought gear and 
waiters and we were so excited and I drove down to his house in Napa County and we drove to San Francisco together and um, we took out of, off out of San Francisco and we flew to to Auckland mm-hmm. before we were going to fly from Auckland and go to some other island where we were going to take a helicopter into these different streams and I mean cool. it was it was the the trip of a lifetime and so we get into Auckland and while I was on the plane we had to fill out this little vegetable you know fruits and vegetables little brochure thing and on the, the last line was have you ever been incarcerated before and I'm looking at that and you know, I'm feeling like wow that's weird and uh so I said well I'm gonna just tell the truth right yeah tell the truth I'm not on probation I'm not doing anything I'm not supposed to so I signed this thing yeah I've been incarcerated and so we get to customs and we, we walk in line we're getting excited now making sure there's no dirt on our shoes because they're really particular about any dirt or any kind of grasses or any kind of something like that getting in New Zealand so I'm more worried about oh my shoes are clean I a brand new I bought them just like you told me and so we get to the custom office and we're checking in and the guy's oh you signed on the bottom you've been in in jail you've been incarcerated I say oh yeah I have he's all well um for how long and I said well 120 months and he, you know, looked at me like 120 months. You know, I think he was calculating in his head. Mm-hmm. Hand went up, and immediately at that point, three custom agents came right for me, and they said, "Could you come with us?" And I was like, "Wow, this is not good." But you know, okay, it's all good. So um, I went to the custom office, left my uncles out there still waiting. He, you know, he's we got to catch a, a, a jumper plane and. Uh, you know, they take me in the office and they're talking to me. They, they get all the details first. And they said, um, you know, how long you've been incarcerated? I told them I did eight years. And they said, don't you know that New Zealand has a law that if you've been incarcerated for more than five years, you can never, never come to this country. And so they said, we'll allow you to stay with an air marshal until the very next plane leaves and you're flying 13 hours back to, to San Francisco. And I had to leave my uncle there to go on this trip by himself. And it just brought back so many memories of like, oh, well, what? I've done my time. I'm, I'm, it was a plant. So to this day, I can't go to Canada. I can't go to New Zealand. You know, I don't even know where. You know, Hawaii's cool. Yeah, uh, they let me go to Hawaii, but um, you know, or Mexico, but you know, it's still, it's just, it needs to be over at one point or another. That's what I don't. I've argued that for a long time too. Is like holding. Is like if you go to jail and you do your time, why it, you get all your stuff back? Yeah, I did get to go. I got on the plane. I was the first one on the plane with this packed plane. I had a seat in between me and the air marshal, so. Um, it was a comfortable ride back anyways. Um, how, ma- how many years was that after you got out? So I was 40, um, tw- 29, 39. So it was like three or four. It was like three or four years after probation. So maybe four or five years after um, I had gotten out of prison. I got out in 2004. Um, I think it was close to 2009 or something like that. Besides, you know, the last person project, which we promote and you reference, you know, there's still people incarcerated as California is making so much tax money off of cannabis at the same time. So much money off of, you know what makes me mad? Can I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm so sorry. It's six, I used to pay. <laughs> he was on a roll. You're fucking him up. Know, excuse me. Good, <laughs> going back to it. And we, we have a rapport. Uh, okay. <laughs> 
But I used to pay $60 an eighth for the best weed I could find in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And now the best weed in California legally is $60 an eighth. That really bothers me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. Do you ever hope that one day everybody's let out of prison, but that it it is also cleaned off of your record so you can go to New Zealand, so you can go? (laughs) Do you think psychologically at least that will be something where it feels like it's not over your head? So while I was, when when I got out of jail, I thought I was free. And then it wasn't until I got off of probation that I really felt a feeling that I didn't even know I had inside of me and I felt so free at that point. So I could say, no, it doesn't bother me, but I'm going to assume that I'm just, I don't know what it would feel like. So I'm going to assume it's going to be that same feeling. And I think it would be amazing. I think I would maybe at that point finally feel free. I'm guessing. Um, I mean, I'm hoping I get to feel that someday. Just as somebody who's working with the government, who's actively trying to help the two worlds come together in a cohesive way, like, how could you not just be like, guys, come the fuck on? Yeah. Well, I think as long as we keep fighting and educating the correct people and putting the right people in the positions of power, that eventually that will happen. They will free all the cannabis they will remove all that oklahoma's already doing in this really cool way that makes me excited because that's in the middle of the motherfucking country some friends of mine from humboldt went to oklahoma uh oklahoma and i as far as i understand that one of the rules they have is you have to have a residence there but they 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 flew there to help him but they said it's on. You it's want on. an acre? You want forty acres to grow? It's it's on. It's on. <laughs> and they said yes. the price is up. Yes. Illinois, they're they're keeping a certain amount of their um, uh, permits that they're giving out specifically for people who have been incarcerated in the past, and specifically for people of color who have been incarcerated in the past. Wow. And that whole forward. state is farmland except yes. for Chicago. <laughs> no one realizes that. When they think Illinois, they think, oh, city. You're like, no, the whole state is flat and ready for cannabis. <laughs> so, so I guess the question that, that's before us and before all the small farmers is, what does it look like when the United States is legal and all those Midwest states are growing cannabis and the price is going to try to be, you know, pennies for a pound. What does that look like for Southern Oregon, Humboldt County, the Emerald Triangle, the small craft sun-grown farmer? Um, that's the scary part. So now's the time where we're trying to establish with the consumer who we are as people and why our stuff is, is special. That's part of why we're here, too, is these all- – because as the con- consumer and a connoisseur, I've always thought that too. And what worries me, like I'm talking about going to these dispensaries in Southern California, and you can tell the stuff that's grown in mass and the stuff that's not. It's so clear that I want these places like Mike and you and these that you guys have been doing it for years to be like Sonoma, like Napa Valley. Where they make wine and wit or like Bourbon County, 
or Motlow County in Tennessee where they make George Dickel and Jack Daniels. They make all that shit everywhere. But people come to where the they go to Bourbon County, Kentucky, because that's where Maker's Mark and all that stuff is. They go to Motlow County, Tennessee, which is a dry county, where George Dickel, where that creek is that George Dickel and Jack Daniels use. They'll come here. They'll come to Southern Oregon because that's where it's at. They want to come see this stuff. My dad loves whiskey. He loves Jack Daniels, and then he changed the proof, and so he switched to George Dickel. He's like, you telling me the proof ain't going to change the way it tastes? He's like, I'll go with that same creek, but I'll go up the creek. So what I think is cool is really the small craft sun-grown farmer, their livelihood and their existence is really going to soon be left up to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I believe in the consumer so much because I believe in people that I'm going to believe that they're going to make the right choice and they're going to allow us to continue to do what we'd love to do because we're, because we're looking out for their best interest and it's not about the dollar. So um, well, it's going to be interesting to see how it all unfolds. Anyone that loves cannabis, even when you had to go meet a dude and smoke with him while his dog did some weird stuff in the corner, you knew the guy that wasn't going to, you started, you trusted the guy that was going to give you the best stuff. Even then, You'd be like, I don't go to that guy anymore. He's lying. He's all this stuff's all over the place. This guy's consistent. He knows what I like, blah, blah, blah. So the consumers already was trained to do that. Now, the more educated they get, it's, it's just going to open it up. And I love that idea of the blind test, you know, taste test. Absolutely. I mean, I think we should be doing something on a larger scale with that really as an educational piece. I mean... Not many people want to do that, but I think that's a great idea. I think that could be explored more because I'd be a then tester. The, then, then it's then the truth be told. Well, and just even in Oregon before COVID, you were allowed to smell your cannabis that you were buying. One of the biggest things that we told our listeners was, "Hey, everybody's biology is different. Everything's going to be, you know, very, you know." There's lots of factors. One size doesn't fit all. Yeah. I like stuff Mike doesn't exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. But we always told people, smell the product. Smell something. Your nose is in tune to what's your body, what's your own uh, chemical makeup, what your endocannabinoid system actually needs and wants. So smell it. Smell it. And just trust yourself. Don't go by hype. Don't go by this. Just trust yourself. Trust the people that you're making connections with. And... Like I said, you know, when you talk to somebody, especially somebody like you, for 10 minutes, you're like, I want to smoke his weed. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. listen to it i'm like i i always get more stuff done after i listen to interviews like that i mean i think it's good for your soul it's like it's like a good sermon but not about jesus do you know about life it's a parable i mean all of our stories have something to teach us 
and you know hopefully it's the good lessons and sometimes the bad lessons but this is a straight up they're all good you. lessons they're lessons yeah that's a can't put morality there's hard to lessons it. and there's easy lessons they're not good or bad lessons <laughs> tell me about it but yeah it's it's an astonishing story and just to come out of it with you know you hear him he's so positive if i had to put eight years into prison and then come out of it i don't know if i could be as positive as he is i mean i've I put a couple of years into relationships and come out less positive about it after. But you know what I'm saying? Like to come out of yeah, it. Yeah, that, that comment is proof <laughs> that you, you do not come out positive about those relationships. But, I've been there, buddy. You'll get over them. I get over. You got you to gotta let it go. Um, but no, it's. And also, I think one of my favorite things about him is how casually he drops some of the jobs he's done because if you know anything about some of those jobs you're like dude that is not that's insane like it's not a job it's like that's you're like yeah we go fishing blah 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 around and you're like that's just that's hard to do (laughs) leisurely not let alone like let's make some money while we do this you're just like what no you said it like it was just like yeah and then i bag groceries on the weekends you're like no and then i go fishing deep into the ocean you're like okay dude it's i want to go fishing with him i know i want to do everything he i want to get him into new zealand i want to i want to that's actually if i'm being honest that is one of my goals now in life is to get popular enough that I can affect change in New Zealand <laughs> to get my buddy to go on a fishing trip. That's what I'm saying. Grown local. Well, we do know some friends who are doing some stuff in New Zealand right now. So wouldn't that be fucking fantastic to get him there? Well, and if they legalize it, they got to drop. They got to be like, oh, you got arrested for the... Come on in. Come on in. So we're going to get him to New Zealand. All right? Without a doubt. John, we're getting you to New Zealand. You guys, thank you so much. Hit us up on Patreon. I hope you enjoyed the Ron Funches interview we dropped last week. Those are going to be like, that's what people are like, hey, Bailey, you should have a podcast. That's what it is. That's what my podcast is. It's going to be on on our Patreon, first tier, where I just hang out and talk to my friends I want to talk to, interesting people. If they want to get really stoned while we do it. That happens. So follow us. Google Grown Local Podcast. It'll all come out. You can follow us any way you want. Uh, we're getting a real cool website soon. Yeah. Also, some Grow Your Own videos are up, too. So check those out. Tents coming together. The grow room's coming together. You're getting it all set up, and then we're going to grow it's some exciting. shit. It's exciting. It's like Christmas. It's like Christmas. It's like Christmas. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> Grow your own. Love you guys. Sweet.